This introductory talk by John Sutherland was given at the Practices of the Night Retreat at Mountain Cloud Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in May 2011. We're gathering together on a young moon, um, only three days since the new moon. And that's a great time to be doing a retreat like this. In, um, in the Asian cultures from which we're drawing many of these practices and for many other peoples around the world, the time between the, the new moon and the full moon was a time of preparation for a big dream, dream incubation ceremony on the full moon. So it's a great time to be doing this and we will um, we'll learn by doing, by doing some, some dream incubations of our, our own over this weekend. Um, as, as I was mentioning before, we're going to be moving in and out of silence and conversation. And so the flow of the retreat is that it's going to be a, a blend of um, information about and conversation on these various practices um, and also doing the practices themselves both in the daytime and at night and then sharing our experiences of doing those practices and I just want to assure you that the sharing is voluntary um, and in fact with a, with a group this size it'll be great if you know a few people will we'll share each time, um, but not everybody at all needs to feel obliged to. But we're going to, as I was saying before, we're going to really try to hold all of this in a retreat field so that we have the chance to give up the um, occupations and preoccupations of our usual lives, the usual way we spend our time, and to sink deeply into this. And one of the things that I love about these practices is, is that they really enable us now, this weekend, and into the future for as long as we want them to, to extend our so-called practice into something that's going on 24 hours a day so that it begins to resemble a life rather than a practice. But that... Um, so that flow of the retreat is really flexible and will always depend on what's actually happening. So we'll go with, with what seems most alive at, at any particular time. For tonight, my, um, my intentions are, uh, first of all, to, to try to set the field in which we will be doing these practices by talking about some kind of foundational ideas and by raising some foundational questions to just throw into the pond and see what happens. And then uh, to begin to provide some practices tonight, particularly about dreaming, although really it'll apply to, to either both dreaming and deep sleep, so that you can get started right away, get started tonight uh, with them. things we'll be talking about come largely from the Chan, which is the Chinese pronunciation of the word that's pronounced Zen in Japanese, the Chan and Zen and Taoist and Tibetan 
traditions with some South Asian traditions that, um, out of which particularly the Tibetan uh, ones came and it's a it's a blend of all of those it's not a, we're not going to particularly focus on anyone but to find the common threads and and what the what the the whole body of um, Mahayana Asian traditions had to say about sleep and dream and then to look at them from our own particular perspective and to really um, see how we can embody them in a way that that it works in our contemporary um, lives and and that is really reimagined through those lives so that it makes a kind of sense a deep mythic sense as well as a common sense uh, in our lives now. Okay, so so pretty much all of the various Buddhist traditions would agree that life is a dream. So we'll just take that as a sort of working assumption that there's something really dreamlike about life and that's important. Um, and I think that that then raises a, a crucial question that I'm not sure we always look at which is this if you think life is a dream do you think the dream is dangerous or beautiful there are whole philosophies built on answering that question all the reasons why it's dangerous all the reasons why it's beautiful and how you come down on that question is really important toward how you see life certainly as well as how you see dreaming and sleeping and practices of the night does the fact that the world is changeable and transient and unstable and uncontrollable make it untrustworthy it's a really important question. Does it make it untrustworthy? Does it make it undependable? Does it make it fickle, dangerous in that way? Do we need to protect ourselves from it? Uh, do we see practice, perhaps without even being conscious of it, as a kind of endless magical gesture to keep away the transience of things? Or... Is it possible that the very rising and falling of things, the way that they are transient and uncontrollable, has such poignancy and such tenderness that it calls to us in some way and begins to appear beautiful? Is it possible that the fact that things come and go the very fact that they come and go, that they don't stay, don't last. Is that what touches our hearts so deeply? Is that what calls forth such feeling from us? So as we begin, the first question I'd like to throw in and ask you to consider as we go along is, if life is a dream, do you think that dream is dangerous or beautiful or maybe some combination of the two? How do you feel about the question of the great matter, um, of the great dream of the world? When we're in a retreat like this, um, when we begin to really stay with the dream, 
in all its layers from from our own individual dreams to the dream that we begin to make together to the dream we begin to feel in the landscape around us in the world around us and then into the great dreaming that brings the world into existence when we stay with the dream on all of those levels we do begin to feel its poignancy I hope and its fleetingness and then we begin to understand how our interior landscape is dreamlike in exactly the same way fleeting and transient in exactly the same way and over the course of a retreat I hope that that inner landscape and the outer landscape will begin to feel continuous that there won't be this sharp separation at the barrier of skin and bone that there will be a sense that there is a dreaming in which we are all connected and part of which each of us expresses in our own particular way Um, if we can do that then we really do become aware of our kinship with the world around us and it's difficult to feel that kinship and also to feel a sense of fundamental danger the deep ecologist John Seed once said when I'm trying to protect the rainforest I remember that it's not me protecting the rainforest it's one part of the rainforest protecting itself I am that part of the rainforest recently emerged into human thinking so like that we are that part of the rainforest that part of the great um, high desert recently emerged into human thinking and and we um, we are in relationship with ourselves fundamentally in some way when we're in relationship with the world we often think of um, practice as being about going from being asleep to being awake I mean we are called awakened life after all but um, but there's another movement that's really important and that's from our individual private dreams into the great dream of the world the way that we can step out of the dream in which we kind of walk around a lot of the time but not in terms of oh you know I was asleep I was deluded and now I'm awake and clear but stepping out of those private dreams into this greater dreaming that is um, it, that's making the world all the time around us and from the um, the dharmic sense that's a way of becoming more realistic it's more realistic to be walking in the great dream of the world rather than encapsulated in your own um, personal dream uh, maybe, maybe you can think of times in your life when um, someone's private dreaming became uh, visible suddenly to you and how shocking that can be sometimes and by the, that private dreaming I mean the way they see the world the way they view the world their understandings about the world how they would describe the world you know those moments when something sort of cracks open and you just see it really raw and naked what the world is like and how, some, um, how very surprising it can be to get a glimpse of someone living in a very very different dream from your own dream almost as if living in a different world so um, 
in contrast to that, maybe you can also think about times that you've been out um, in the in the natural landscape somewhere and um, maybe you're watching the wind blow through the trees or across the water and for a while you're aware of wind blowing through trees and across water and then the categories and the filters kind of start to drop away and you become just aware of the movement and the pattern of light and dark um, and, and the feeling of things um, changing and shifting without having to, to label them, the sort of the gestalt of the whole thing. Um, and then after a while, maybe even that much of a sense of trying to organize it falls away, and there's just the thing itself. So in dreaming practice, in the practices of the night, we're beckoned into that kind of view of the world what it's like when we don't even have names and organizing principles for things, but when we're just fully immersed in a moment like that in the natural world. And that view is no less real than our ordinary way of seeing things, our ordinary way of organizing things. Uh, It's just that it's often in the background and that other way of seeing and organizing and filtering is in the foreground. But it really is no less real, and when we can fall back into that way of experiencing the world, we can find a kind of resonant state with the world, as we often do in in nature. When we seem to be sort of vibrating, you know, at the same speed as what's happening around us. And again, that sense of... um, the continuousness of inside and outside. So that's entering the dream of the world. When you have that feeling of the continuousness of inside and outside, that means you're in the dream of the world. And when we let fall our usual ways of organizing our perceptions of the world, something else becomes possible. And that something else is what we're going to be exploring this weekend. Um, it's not that we want to completely drop away our ordinary way of seeing things or thinking things. We want to include this as well, and we want to develop what we often speak about as a kind of binocular vision, where we're seeing in both ways simultaneously. We're seeing in the ordinary way that sees wind and water and trees and leaves and all of that, and we're also seeing simultaneously in this other way where we are somehow resonant with what's happening and um, moving at a similar speed. From that view, that it's impermanent, that the leaves are always moving, that the wind is moving over the water, that the scene is always changing, can't be frightening. There's nothing frightening about it. In fact, it can be quite compelling. So that's the gift of that view. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the Mahayana traditions and um, the the kind of um, Western traditions that some people have mentioned, psychological traditions, Jungian, and all of that, because there are some some important differences. Um, One is that the Mahayana practices will tend to focus on states of consciousness rather than the content of the state. 
So what I was just talking about, those times when we feel a kind of resonance with the natural world, that's a state of consciousness. It's not important to um, analyze that or assign meaning to it or figure out what the symbolism of the wind moving over the water is, right? It's just it's, w- what comes to the foreground is the very experience itself. And that's what the Mahayana is interested in um, rather than in the contents, the, rather than in the content of the dream or the vision or the experience and what it might mean. Um, the Mahayana traditions also focus on sleep as much as and maybe even more than dreaming. And we're going to focus a lot of, uh, uh, on dreaming here at the beginning. But as we move into the, into the weekend, we'll sp- be spending more time with um, deep sleep as well. And I think the, the views of sleep are radically different and maybe one of the places that's most different. In... in, in um, the kinds of Western cultures that are based around psychology and also others as well, um, we, you know, we tend to think of sleep in terms of, uh, of health. Sleep is therapeutic. Sleep is restorative. Did you get a good night's sleep? We know what that means. That means a deep sleep that where you feel, wake up feeling physically refreshed and maybe emotionally refreshed as well. Um, in the Mahayana traditions, and, and it's okay if this goes at the moment because it went like this for about 25 years. Um, dream, um, deep sleep rather than dreaming is the place where you connect with the natural luminosity of your own awareness, which is the same as the natural luminosity of the universe. Um, the natural luminosity of reality. And we will we'll talk a lot more about that and, and maybe even touch that. But that's a pretty different thing than um, sleep is restorative, <laughs> except maybe in some gigantic cosmic sense, you know, of being restorative to, um, to the deepest nature of things. Um, another another difference that I find quite beautiful is that um, it, again in most of the Asian um, cultures we're, we're drawing on they talk about seeing a dream rather than having a dream did you see a dream last night there's a, there's a whole world view in the, in the shift from have to see and I just want to mention a couple of things about it again we'll touch on this as we go along but one is a sense that a dream is something that's given to you a dream has a, a reality and an authority in a way that isn't personal you don't create a dream you're given a dream that's a really different view you get to see it um, and, and, and so they're, they're given to individuals from somewhere else and where that from somewhere else is um, Stephen we, did you say you want to know where your dreams come from was that you who said that that was that was you David um, so maybe we'll we'll find out about where they come from um, and the sense of seeing also is reciprocal in that you are seen by the dream as well as seeing it so the word that's used for those of you who know a little bit of Sanskrit is darshan, darshana. Um, and darshana is a meeting with a god or a meeting with a teacher where you are seen and where you see and are seen. And that's the relationship with the dream. It sees you too. So I see a real um, creative tension between 
the Western largely psychological way of looking at dreams and these Mahayana ways. It's it's a creative tension between the exploration of individual psyches that we tend to find um, in in uh, Jung and and, and other. Uh, philosophies we probably most of us have an idea that dreams are messages from one largely hidden part of our, ourselves to the more conscious part um, and that's kind of what they do they communicate stuff to us that we ought to know that we don't we're not conscious of um, whereas in the Mahayana rather than um, emphasizing that kind of exploration of an individual psyche there's an, there's an exploration of the emptiness of all things um, and by emptiness we don't mean you know the absence of something the lack of something a kind of hollowness we're talking about the emptiness of self nature of things the interconnectedness the inner permeation of all things so um, the emphasis in the Mahayana is on f- having ways that show you in lots of different perspectives that fundamental emptiness of things or we can equally say that fundamental interpermeation of all things with each other and the dreamlike quality of life and of things um, there's a psychological emphasis on individuation. Again, a sort of, you know, um, emphasis on health, on becoming um, individuated and, and psychically healthy. And in the Mahayana, on awakening. And those are not exactly the same things. Um, and that's something we can, we can talk about if, if we want. But I'm not suggesting that we choose one or the other. And I'm not saying let's replace the psychological model with the, with the um, Mahayana model at all. I think they're both tremendously valuable. And so I'm talking about including something else, blending them together, um, seeing what they do when we explore the creative tension between them and include both of them. And, um, and I think that there's something, you know, there's something that can be quite rich there for us. So, um, as an example of the kind of difference in attitude between the two approaches, I want to talk just for a moment about lucid dreaming, which we'll come back to again more and and talk in detail about and talk about practices for. Lucid dreaming is basically um, knowing that you're dreaming when you're dreaming, being awake in the dream, so you're aware it's a dream, and then with practice being able to do things in the dream, to affect the dream, to to change things. and again, we'll, we'll do more on that later. So it, when, when you read um, European and American writers on, on lucid dreaming, the first thing most people will talk about is that it's really cool. <laughs> you know, it's really fun to do. It's really interesting. It's a kind of exciting thing. Um, and, and that, you know, for a lot of people, that's enough. That's, that's great. Um, also, there's a sense that it could be potentially therapeutic that if you can get inside your dreams and you can work with them and you can change them, then it might be really helpful in terms of learning new skills or reinforcing things that you're learning. In fact, there are studies that show that that's true. Um, and also that you can, um, you can transform fears as represented by na- nightmares, that you can, you can change a nightmare, you can make something else happen. 
Um, on, from the Mahayana perspective, it's on lucid dreaming, it's completely different. None of that is interesting um, because because what you're doing when you focus on the content, when you focus on the ability to manipulate and change the content, is that you're just reinforcing the sense of a self. There's this I doing this operation in the dream and making something happen, and that that isn't interesting from from this other perspective. What is is to show you like as you're dreaming the dreamlike quality of things, the empty quality of things. You know that even the dream isn't real, you know, and and you're and you're fully aware of that, and also. Um, for learning to remain aware, you learn how to lucid dream, you learn how to stay aware in your dreams so that you can take that quality of awareness into deep sleep because that's where it really matters. Back a little while ago, I was talking about deep sleep as the place we touch the natural luminosity of reality. So if we can take a kind of lucid awareness that we learn through lucid dreaming into deep sleep and stay um, aware of the natural luminosity of the universe, well, that's kind of great. <laughs> that's kind of life-changing. That's kind of really important. And that's how the Mahayana would see the practice as being um, helpful and useful. Most of um, Mahayana practice is aimed at, at um, getting us to experience the emptiness of ourselves. The fact that um, there isn't this abiding, consistent thing we call ourselves that um, carries on for years and years and years and does so much in, in its own um, preservation and maintenance. And when the Mahayana talks about seeing the emptiness of the self, it's not saying that the self isn't real. It's saying it's just not what you think it is. It's not that permanent, consistent, abiding um, thing that carries on for years and years and years in particular ways. So if it isn't what we think it is, that's great because that opens up all kinds of other possibilities. Well, what is it if it's not that? What is it? That's, that's, that's a very fundamental Mahayana exploration. So things open up in an interesting way. Um, and dreaming and sleeping are ways to consider this question of if the self isn't what we think it is, what might it be? What else is it? So that's another question that at this point I'll just throw in and we'll come back to look at some more. Um, in Mahayana terms, the sense of self is supported by sensory experience. I touch, see, hear, smell, taste, and think, and therefore I am. So there's a great interest in the dreaming and the sleeping states because there is little or no sensory input at all. So if our sense of self is dependent on sensory input all the time, what happens when there isn't any? What happens to the self? What happens when the, um, the input isn't coming from the, the outside world at all, but is actually coming from inside our own consciousnesses? 
what does that say about the self? So another question just to, to drop in at this point. What is that self that gets constituted in the dream not based on sensory experience? What is that self that gets constituted in the dream based on some kind of interior experience, some kind of purely imaginal experience, an experience that happens only in our heart minds? What is that self? Is that self less real than the self constituted by actual sensory experience? I mean, if you think about it, can we say that? We spend a third of our life, more or less, in that self. Can we say it's less real? Um, I think it was Havelock Ellis said, um, um, the, uh, the dream is real as long as it's there. Can we say any more about life? Um, in our dreams, neither we nor the world around us behave in, in the ways that they do in waking life. So here's maybe something that, that you know we don't think about too often consciously, but we have to do something about that. We spend a third of our lives in this world that doesn't behave the way ordinary life does. We don't behave the way we ordinarily do in our ordinary lives. So what do we do about that? Do we dismiss it? and just say that it's nonsense, it's just the random firings of the brain, you know, slowing down at the end of the day? I mean, do we just say it's nonsense? Um, Do we, as in um, psychology, do we see it as a meaningful story? Do we try to find the the meaning in the um, differences between the way things behave in dream life? That's the psychological approach. What's meaningful about the stories being told? Or, as in the Mahayana way, do we accept that that world, however strange, however anomalous, however unlike waking life, is just as real as waking life? Just as real, with its different customs and laws and powers, but as real. And then, do we explore the continuities between waking and dreaming and sleeping states and the discontinuities between them? And if we do that, then do we begin to sort of experience waking life as maybe a heck of a lot more dreamlike than Newtonian, really? That's the um, Mahayana approach. So to finish um, setting this kind of philosophical field, for the work we're going to do. I just want to mention a couple of, of terms of art that will come up and, and um, I think are quite beautiful in and of themselves. The, the first is the um, Mahayana idea of bardos, which many of you have probably come across. Bardos are states of existence or states of consciousness, and they're by their nature... Um, intermediate and transitory even though waking life is one of the bardos so it's it's a very long intermediate but it's all but waking life is still seen as an intermediate state between other things and um, in the in the Indian leading into the Tibetan tradition there's six bardos the first is our, our ordinary waking state which is defined in one of the Tibetan texts as hallucination-like experiences that are the consequence of karmic propensities. 
that's your life in Tibetan Buddhism. Hallucination-like experiences that are the consequence of karmic propensities. Okay, so that's one bardo. Another bardo is the meditation state. Uh, Another is the dream state. Another is what's called the intermediate state, which is um, the state that happens um, after dying before rebirth, and also that we can touch in deep sleep. The dying process is another bardo, and 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 um, this is this is quite moving to me. The dying process begins the moment the cause of our death appears in our life, whether we're aware of it or not. The moment the cause of our death appears in our life, whether we know it or not, whether it takes 35 years, we're in the dying bardo, and it lasts until physical death, until until the organism dies. And then the last bardo is, so then you would go into that intermediate um, state that I mentioned before. And then the last bardo is the search for rebirth, when we sort of fall out of that intermediate state and begin to um, look to start the cycle all over again. So that sense of we're always in an intermediate state, Uh, we're always between we're always in a cycle that um, has all of these distinct states within it. And, um, you know, we we often have experiences in our lives that seem like small bardos within the bardo. You know those times where it just feels like something has so much its own character. There was that time and and then it wasn't that time anymore. Right, and it's so clear when it's not that time anymore. Those are bardos as well, personal, our own personal bardos. Um, the other term of art I wanted to mention is the tree kaya, the three bodies. Um, there are in the tree kaya there are three bodies corresponding to three worlds that exist simultaneously in everything. We are, we are in the midst of um, a world made up of three bodies. We ourselves have those three bodies, as does everything else. The, f- the first body is the Nirmanakaya, which in, in, in Buddhism often gets called the world of form. It's the material world. Um, the world we can perceive from microscopes to telescopes. Um, It's the world of karma, of cause and effect, the world where stuff happens. Um, And it's that aspect of everything um, that is impermanent and constantly changing, constantly rising and falling according to causes and conditions. And that corresponds with our waking consciousness, our waking life. The third body is the Dharmakaya. Hmm? Third. Yeah, I skipped the second on purpose. Oh. I'm coming back to it. No, it's, I'm, I'll come back to that. The third is the Dharmakaya, which is, um, in, again, in, in, um, in Buddhism called shunyata, emptiness. We call it the vastness. Science calls it the field of fields. The Taoists call it the great mysterious. You know, that thing. 
Um, it's the aspect of everything that is eternal in each moment that doesn't change. So when we experience the full-on suchness of something, what we call tathagata, that's seeing the dharmakaya of something which is bam, nothing but piper in the whole universe. That's that's piper dharmakaya, <laughs> um, which is a really nice place to be. And um, and that corresponds to the clear light of deep sleep. So in between those two bodies, in between the Nirmanakaya and the Dharmakaya is the Sambhogakaya. And that is the body of particular interest to us this weekend, so I save it for last. And um, if the Nirmanakaya is the material world and the Dharmakaya is the essential world, the empty world, the Sambhogakaya is in the middle of the two. It's the energetic world. It's the world in which something has arisen out of the Dharmakaya but has not fixed into form in the Nirmanakaya world yet. So it's that intermediate world of imagination, of myth, of creativity, of um, a lot of spiritual experiences, experiences we have in meditation. It's um, imagination, creativity, possibility. It's the place we contact other dimensions, however you understand other dimensions, whether they're other dimensions of your own psyche, other dimensions of the world. Um, if you're Vimala Kirti and you can open the roof and connect with the um, Dharma field of many fragrances, you know, all those other worlds. And um, it's associated, not surprisingly, with dreaming. So that place where anything is possible because the energy has arisen out of the Dharmakaya but hasn't fixed into form yet in the Nirmanakaya still could go anywhere, still is utterly malleable and flexible. Um, in, in his amazing account of, of one of his visionary experiences, Black Elk described this um, standing in the Sambhogakaya, although he wouldn't have called it that, obviously. He said, while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For seeing in a sacred manner, for I was seeing in a sacred manner, the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. So that sense of the shape, the shapes of all things in the spirit, all, all spirits combined into um, and something that is completely interpermeating, living together as one being. That's the Sambhogakaya. So just as we move in and out of the bardos, um, in and out of different states of consciousness, states of being, we also in a sense move in and out of the bodies although all the bodies are always present in ourselves and in the world it's just that sometimes one will move to the forefront um, and the others will, will recede but they're all simultaneous they're all always there so when we um, live 
limit our sense of the self to that pattern of continuity that persists over years and years and years and does the same things and drives us mostly crazy, you know, by, by report. That's what you all say anyway. Um, the self is that thing always talking inside your head that you wish would stop. Um, if, we, if we limit it to that, that's only a mnemonicaya view of the self. That's, that's leaving out the sambhogakaya and the dharmakaya views of the self. So that's leaving out a lot of it. Um, a f- the fullest and truest life would be one that included all three an awareness of all three bodies in ourselves and an awareness of all three bodies in, in everything around us um, not valuing one over the other or privileging one over the other but that there are always aspects of you and um, there are always aspects of your experience and of the world right here and now so one may move into the foreground and the others into the background, but that's all. They never disappear, and we can always access them. We can always touch them, and they really need each other. Um, if it's if it's all dharmakaya all the time, if it's all the vastness, all emptiness all the time, um, and it, that's the place where we can really experience the thusness of things, the suchness of things. Without a material world, there's nothing to be thus. You know. We're, the only way we know thus, thusness, is from, um, from the material, the materiality of things. Um, if, if we didn't have the material world, we could only dream about babies and suspension bridges. We could never actually build them. But if we had only that material world, only the world of form, um, if it's not lightened by a sense of the sacred from the Dharmakaya or from a sense of the flexibility and possibility of imagination of the Sambhogakaya, it can have a kind of relentless and heavy quality to it. So we really need all three to be in some kind of um, conversation uh, in themselves, among themselves. So in that Sambhogakaya, that middle realm of imagination and dreaming, the body is the dream body. And it's the dream body that's with us all the time. So the person you are in, the, in, in your dreams, the person who can do all the amazing things you can do in your dreams, you know, like fly um, and um, speak strange languages and become animals and do all that, that's not some special state you have to go into a dream in order to find. You're that weird all the time. <laughs> always. That's always with you. Those possibilities are all... It's not just a special state. It's, it's part of who you are. And um, you're that unlimited, right now, here, without having to dream. And you're that mixed up with everything else. You're that interpermeating with everything. That dream body is the place that knows emptiness, that knows that we're all interpermeating, that knows that um, the distinctions and the differences and the boundaries we make between things are just entirely provisional and only one way of looking at things. You can um, touch that aspect of yourself in dreaming, um, which is a really beautiful thing to be able to do, so that you can begin maybe to believe that you're that person all the time, as well as the person who just paid your income taxes and um, has a plan for Sunday dinner already. Um, in, 
in the in the Chan and Zen tradition, that that dream body has a kind of dual character. It's called the body of realization and the body of enjoyment. And how I understand that is that in the dream body we stand in the Sambhogakaya between the material world and the empty world. And we have again this binocular vision. One eye is trained on the vastness and that's the eye of realization. And the other eye is trained on the material world and that's the eye of enjoyment. The dream body enjoys the world. The dream body is connected to the vastness at the same time. It's in the dream body that those two things can come together and mix and create something new. So realization and delight, realization and enjoyment, that's what makes um, the transformation and the creativity possible in the Sambhogakaya, in the dream body. Okay. Enough for tonight. Probably more than enough for tonight. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.